Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Ben and this is the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast. Hey family, today's Thursday and that means it is time to talk Q. This is episode six of season two, Living the Dream. In this season, I'll be chatting with some of the most successful barbecue entrepreneurs out there about the different types of businesses you can get into and what it takes to be successful. Knives. You can't cook barbecue without a good knife. Or several knives. Briskets, boners, utilities, chef's knives, every knife has a purpose. And when you find a good one, you need to hang on to it and one day you'll pass it on to your grandchildren. If they've been built right. In this killer episode, Aiden from Cutthroat Knives takes us into the world of artisan bladesmithing, the process of starting with a lump of steel and refining it into the ultimate kitchen tool. You've seen his work at the amazing Meatstock Festivals. They were the trophies at several of those competitions this year. Well, that's enough out of me. Grab yourself a fistful of beef ribs and a frosty and let's get into the world of artisan bladesmithing. This is the Smoking Hot Confessions Podcast with barbecue pitmaster Ben Arnott. How long's it been since your last confession? Support for this episode comes from Harvey's Kitchen. Harnessing over 25 years experience in commercial kitchens and catering, Harvey's has a burning passion for food and they make amazing barbecue flavor easy to achieve for all levels of barbecue. Their entire product range is handcrafted locally in Brisbane from quality ingredients and they've gone out of their way to make their products easy to use with simple features like resealable bags. I've played around with their butcher's box and have found their preservative, gluten and dairy-free rubs and sauces to be top-notch stuff. The butcher's box has nine rubs and six sauces in it. I love the ginger citrus salt on chicken wings and the hop and habanero hot sauce on everything. Right now, Harvey's is offering Smoking Hot Confessions listeners an exclusive 20% discount. Yes, 20%. All you need to do is head on over to harveyskitchen.com.au and use the code word CONFESSIONS to get your hands on some today. Once again, head over to harveyskitchen.com.au and use the code word CONFESSIONS at checkout for 20% off your order. Welcome to the confessional, Aiden. My first question is, what was the last thing that you barbecued? Uh, the last thing I barbecued was in summer. I'm not much of a winter barbecuer, but I did uh, a whole beef loin uh, low over the over the charcoal. Uh, and at the same time, I did a set of pork ribs in char siu uh, sauce. So the same sauce that you get like a, a pork bun from a Chinese restaurant, the same sauce. I did that all over the, uh, over the ribs. Oh, fantastic. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it worked out pretty well. Um, you know, any any time, any chance to stand in front of a barbecue is a good day for me. <laughs> I think that's true for uh, just about everybody listening as well. Mm. So we're going to get into knife making later, but you obviously like to play with fire. Um, what kind of barbecue do you cook on? Okay. I have to preface this by saying that I live in an apartment complex, and so my space is very limited. But even with a limited balcony, I have uh, a Pro-Q Mountain Smoker and a Weber uh, barbecue as well. So I've got both of those running on my tiny balcony. Uh, And that's where I get all my work done. Okay. So what was your introduction to low and slow barbecue? Uh, I've always been into food. And so, you know, 
cooking on a barbecue is just is such a nice addition to to cooking in your own house as well, being able to cook outdoors. Uh, and then I can't remember what what pushed me because I'm gonna I'm gonna separate by saying gas barbecuing is just not on the same page as cooking over over coal. Uh, so getting into that was was its own thing. But I think, it's, you know, you, you step into this stuff through a, a weird introduction. So for me, it was somebody gave me uh, pickles, pork and brine. As a, I, think, I think that's the name of the cookbook. And I just fell in love with it. I was like, okay, I guess I've got to go and buy a charcoal barbecue now. I guess I've got to go buy a smoker now because I like this cookbook so much that I need to be able to cook everything in this cookbook. <laughs> that's awesome. I love it. Can you fill me in a bit on the background of uh, Cutthroat Knives? So I set up Cutthroat Knives. We're in our third year of business now. Uh, and I, I, I went off and did a, a knife-making course with a guy called Adam Parker. And he drives out to Ballarat and you're like, oh, can we make a chef's knife? And he's like, well, we're going to make a hunting knife. Uh, and so we made a hunting knife and I, I've never hunted. Uh, <laughs> and... And so I had this knife, but as soon as I did it, I was like, wow, this, this process of, of taking some, some mediocre ingredients and then making them something really incredible, really connected with me. It's, it's a version of cooking, you know, there's something powerful about going, Hey, there's this thing that exists in the world that didn't exist until I finished it. Uh, I think that's what knife making is. You take a, piece of steel and some, some bits of wood and through your time and determination you you, you make something uh, and that's powerful and it's and, and it's kind of motivated me to continue going the business well it's it's literally taking two different uh, things from the earth and creating something new isn't it because i mean you know steel is mined and with uh, the wood comes from trees and and so you, you you're yeah. taking two two elements and, uh, and and turning them into something new. So I can really understand what you're saying there. Yeah, there's something really beautiful about steel. Steel is, at its most basic level, iron and carbon. And that's kind of what humans are as well. You know, we're carbon-based life forms with blood that's made out of iron, you know? That's kind of cool that, that a knife is is a reflection of us in, a, in its own kind of weird way. And it's also our oldest tool. We've been making knives for two million years. And so to be part of that history of knife making is an incredibly powerful experience. Yeah, I'd never thought of it that way, but that's yeah, that's that's very true. That's um it's part of a very long uh, lineage, isn't it? Mm. It's the like it's it's the oldest tool that we have. It's older than our management of fire. So before humans were using fire to even cook or do anything. Or cutting up things with knives. Hmm. I'd never thought of that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's a very good point. So, um, the first time that I met you was at uh, Meatstock Melbourne, and you had the Cutthroat Knives uh, table up there, and you were actually one of the sponsors for Meatstock Melbourne. Um, how did that collaboration come about? Yeah, so Jay, who runs uh, Meatstock Melbourne, reached out to us and said, you know, do you want to make the trophies for our competition? Uh, and it's something we've been we've been toying around with anyway. Because of you know how do we 
So we approached some people and get this to happen. So it was kind of serendipitous that he approached us. Uh, and at the same time, we're also going, look, we want to introduce a brisket cutting knife. Uh, and so like, yeah, let's make one of our brisket knives and we'll make it for your, uh, for, for meat stock. And we'll also launch the brisket knives at meat stock as well. Um, and, you know, we wanted to make the meat stock ones a little bit more special. So we did some extra things for them, but it was, it just worked out really, really well. Can you describe those uh, those special meat stock knives for me? Yeah, certainly. So it's a 12-inch blade uh, with what's called a canto tip. So it, 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 uh, it goes at a very sharp angle upwards right at the very tip of the blade. The handles were a mix of resin and wood with the resin matching the colour of meat stock's uh, logos. Uh, and then it had on the blade itself... Uh, meat stock logo was was laser etched onto the blade itself. Um, so altogether, it needs to be a reflection. You know, when we do these kind of work for, for other brands, it's not just about making a knife for them. It's about making a knife that represents their brand to the best ability that we can. Right. Now, I have a bit of a background in martial arts, and there's something in my memory telling me that Kanto is a type of sword from Japan. Is there some Japanese sort of martial arts traditional influences in your designs? Yes, yeah, certainly there's it it definitely takes inspiration from um from from Japanese knives. We wanted it to be a knife that when you held it it gave you a you know, a sense of importance so that when you're when you're cooking with this, it it just makes you feel good. Uh and so it, it does have these kind of like katana esque elements to it. Um we loved it. We kind of steered into it where we just wanted the person, you know, who, who cooks on the weekend or cooks every day to feel like a warrior when they're doing so. It's funny that you say that because when I was at Meatstock and I got to pick it up and hold it, that was the very first thing I did was I grabbed one in each hand and struck a pose on my wife, took a quick photo. And uh, yeah. I, I, I just thought I was being strange, but I've obviously picked up on the uh, on the theme that, that you were going with. So that's great. Fantastic. Well, you know, that means our job's done. Yeah. Um, so those particular knives that were the trophies from Meatstock, um, are they functional or are they, uh, or are they purely trophy? Uh, we don't want to make a non-functional knife. There are, there are knife makers out there who make art knives that I would say would border on being non-functional. Um, but our goal is to is to make something that somebody uses. It it, it actually is is at loggerheads with our creative process. That if, if we make something and it never gets used, that takes away from what we're trying to do. We want them. We want people to use them. We want them people to you know use them for a very long time. That's great. So any which way someone gets hold of a cutthroat knife, they're going to be able to uh, to use it for uh, for a lifetime. Yeah, that's the goal. Fantastic. So there are many types of knives that you could and probably do make, but what is it about barbecue that drives you to design knives for barbecue? With a lot of this stuff, it's, I'm making it because I want it to exist. You know, I, I'm our first chef's knife was, like, was me saying, hey, there's a chef's knife that I want to exist but doesn't really exist yet. And so I made my, my chef's knife. And I was the same with our pairing and the Santoka and the Sabatier. 
And then at one point, as I got more and more into barbecuing, I was like, well, you know, people are using bread knives and people are using uh, a whole bunch of weird knives to cut up brisket. And none of them are really appropriate for cutting up brisket where it has the right toothiness to get through your bark. Mm. But doesn't, you know, like a serrated edge is just going to murder the soft part of the flesh on on brisket. And so you need this this balance between those two different things. And so that's what what brought it apart was was my own interest in in barbecuing and my own interest in cooking. Interesting. So you find that a non serrated edge um, gets through the bark uh, efficiently, obviously. Yeah. It, it, there's a few elements to this. If you go for, you know, a, a shaving sharp edge, which would be kind of 12,000 grit on the, on the edge of the blade. Yes, that will, you, you could run that along your arm and all the hair would disappear from your arm, but that's, it's not actually going to cut through the, the bark very well. And so we actually worked with uh, a couple of different barbecues and we drew it right back. We, we actually went with a very, what's called a toothy edge. So a thousand grit and we put that on the on the blade and that really worked. So it's cutting through the, the bark and then and then doing justice to to the to the meat inside. Wow, so there's quite a lot of um R and D actually with uh with barbecuers went into designing these knives, was it? It was about uh, like so from, from thought until completion it generally takes us about six to eight months to, to make a new knife that we add into our range. Um, and at one point we, we do just go off and work, work with people and, and get some, some active feedback. Um, and we also, you know, cook up our own food and play around with it that way as well. Uh, we don't feel the need to share all of this kind of stuff, all the R and D that goes into it, but it does happen behind the scenes where we're constantly kind of, testing these things and testing new ideas and or you hear about somebody else doing something and you try and replicate their their results yeah right okay so if i could pin you down to uh maybe one idea what is it that makes cutthroat knives unique yeah i think it's an interesting question because i think at the end of the day all knives cut food so why why go with a cutthroat knives versus anything else. I think what we're trying to do with cutthroat knives is to develop a truly Australian knife company. Uh, and so that's not just replicating Japanese knives and selling those. And yeah, it's, it's about saying let's have, let's combine a few different design elements and, and work towards making them an Australian knife brand that represents Australian flavours. I had a conversation with um, uh, Andy Groneman at the Burley Barbecue Championships a few weeks ago, and one of the things he said was that he was impressed with the creativity in Australian barbecue. And I can see that in your knives as well. I was um, following your... I've, I've been following your Facebook page since we met at Meatstock, and uh, one of the things that I loved the most was I saw one of your knives had... Um, I think it must have been for a beekeeper or something. It had, like, uh, bees... Um, like in the resin of the handle and that, and the just the the creativity and the the ingenious uh, design work that you put into that was just fascinating. Yeah, thank you. That was we're really really happy with that how that turned out. That was another one where 
it, we'd had an idea and oh, it, it just, everything that could have gone wrong on that night went wrong before we finally got it right. Oh, it took no. us six months just to work out how to get the, re, the bees encased in resin. Uh, and, you know, the resins that we use are very particular. They're very robust and, and will stand up to a lot of different damage. And, and that just happened to react with, with the bees and they kept on exploding under pressure or react, uh, the moisture that was still inside them, even though we'd, we'd taken as much moisture as we could out of them by drying them and doing different things. It still reacted with the, with the resin. The resin wouldn't set every, every step of the way that, that product fought us. But then when we finally finished it, we were really, really happy with it. Um, again, that's one of our, uh, that was one of our limited editions. We do limited editions every couple of months. And it's about pushing ourselves as knife makers. It's about making our mark on the knife making community and saying, okay, what we're trying to do is very different. Well, mate, you are absolutely making that mark. It was, uh, it was a beautiful bit of gear. Yeah, cheers. This is Bretto from the Flaming Mongrels, and you're listening to Smoking Hot Confessions. Local products don't get much more local than Ministry of Smoke's Smoking Woods. An Australian family-owned company specialising in native hardwoods as well as fruitwoods, Rod has never revealed his sources of his timber. But they do come from premium New South Wales and Queensland timber regions. I exclusively use Rod's products with Smoking Hot Confessions, and my favourites are his Ironbark and Applewood, and his Gigi Lump Charcoal is killer. Most exciting, Rod now produces his own range of pellets, including Red Wine Oak Barrel and Ironbark. These can be used in pellet grills and in smoker boxes in other types of barbecues. They're also great in the Uni Pellet Pizza Ovens for a delicious combination of smoke and pizza. As an added bonus, all his pellets are sold in food-grade pail, so they're great for commercial operations as they can be repurposed. You can reach out to Rod on Facebook. Just search for Ministry of Smoke and shoot him a message. Okay, we're here today to talk about the business of knife making. So in this segment, we're going to get into uh, more of the the what's involved in becoming a knife maker and uh, and a little bit about the, the industry. So... The first thing I have to know is, is there a special term for knife making, like an industry term? Um, for the level of artwork that goes into your knives, I'm, I, I feel like I'm being rude referring to it as knife making. The knife making is an entirely appropriate term for what we do. There's, there's two terms that have become somewhat interchangeable in, in knife making, which is bladesmithing and knife making. Bladesmithing specifically refers to uh, if you're doing forging, so if you forge, you forge the knife to get the the basic shape of, of a blank, and then do the rest of the work on the grinder. Uh, you'd be traditionally called a bladesmith, while a, a knife maker can be somebody who does what's called the stock removal method, which is you get a, a, a sheet of steel that's already at a predetermined thickness, and you grind away at it until you get what's called the blank again, which is your the shape of the knife that you want to do and then you grind in the geometry and, and, and create the rest of the knife from there. Both of them have a very similar end result. Uh, bladesmithing, it's just a different way of getting to that middle point of, uh, of a blank, which is that knife-shaped look. 
One is using metal and then hammering it into a shape. One is cutting off the excess bits of metal and, and then creating the shape that way. So we do a little bit of both. We do slightly more stock removal than we do forging, but that's becoming a much larger part of what we do. Right. So if you're watching Game of Thrones and you're probably watching bladesmithing. Yes, that would be, yeah, forging and bladesmithing is, is the much more traditional way of, of making knives. It's also the, the more evocative one. When you think about somebody who's making a knife, you're thinking about them standing in front of a hot forge, pulling it out, putting it onto an anvil and hitting with a hammer. Are there any benefits of one over the other, like for the end user of the knife? For the end user these days, no. Um, it would be a very difficult argument to say that uh, a forged versus a stock removal in the hands of a good knife maker, one is better than the other. One is more economic in the sense that with the material itself. So if you if you forge, you're you're using a smaller amount of material and you're forging it into shape. Uh, with stock removal, you're you're cutting off the excess, and so you've got a lot of wastage that goes into this. But the the end result for the for the user, as long as the person knows what they're doing, is that they will both perform at a really really high level. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, can you take me through um, a day in the life of a uh, of a knife maker or bladesmith? Yeah, so we're trying to progress a lot of knives forward on any, on any given day, and so some of these uh, knives are all sitting at different parts of our, our process. But but generally, what will happen is we'll get in and we'll put in a whole bunch of knives to be heat treated. So the heat treatment is the heart and soul of what makes you a good knife maker. Um, the better you are at that, the better the end results are going to be. So that's determining the, the, the end hardness, the ductility, the various qualities of the steel uh, is what you're doing when you're heat treating steel. So what we do is we, uh, we heat it up between you know, roughly 800 degrees and, or 1200 degrees for some steels. Uh, centigrade, and then we quench it. So we drop the temperatures very, very quickly, either in oil or water or between aluminium uh, blocks. Uh, and at that point, the steel is incredibly hard. And then we start tempering it to, to lower the stress that's in the steel. So that's just one part of our day. So that's going on in the background. While that's while those things are heating up in our ovens, uh, we'll start grinding. We'll stand in front of our, um, uh, our bench grinders uh, and and start shaping some other knives that we've already heat treated and progressing them along. Uh, and once they've come off the bench grinder, you hand sand them and then you'll laser them and then we'll glue on the handles. Uh, and that will be the job for the next day when you shape the handles the day after. So we've got a lot of different things that we're doing on any given day. Um, a lot of processes that just take time and so you kind of set them going in the background uh, and a lot of process, processes that are active that you have to be standing in front of it and actually doing it the whole time. Uh, and then we also set aside some time to, to forge. So we've got our gas forge going. We've got uh, a, a forge press that does 25 tons of, of, of pressure down on something, a rolling mill and some hammers as well. And so we start working steel and that's our Damascus. That's how we make our Damascus as well. Ah, could you explain a little bit more about um, about Damascus? I've, I've heard that phrase before, but I haven't, haven't quite understood it. Yeah, so uh, modern Damascus, is is kind of better understood as pattern welded steel. 
So what you do is you layer up a whole bunch of steel, two different varieties, uh, and you then heat that steel up and and compress it together under under heat, uh, and that draws out the steel, uh, and then you start contorting it or twisting it so you can drill holes in it. You can uh, you can twist it one way. You can uh, do cuts through it, and all of this kind of stuff is going to is going to change that patination on the uh, on the on the steel itself. And then finally, when you've got this blade that you've finished, when you dip the steel, you dip it in in an acid, and the acid wears away at the two different steels that you push together at different rates, and that's what creates that pattern on Damascus. Uh, so really, what you're paying for when you're getting a Damascus blade is all the work that made into making that steel look incredibly beautiful. Right. So the reason that 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 you'd go for a Damascus then is aesthetic. It's it's a combination of aesthetic, but it's also a statement about the skill of that knife maker. Uh, that that knife maker knows how to how to create. Damascus steel and to work it properly, um, that becomes a very large part of it. Ah, cool. Thank you. I've always wondered about that. So what does it take to become a knife maker? What sort of training is involved? So we, the people that I've taken on have had no background in in knife making. For me, it's about having the right attitude to this kind of stuff, an eagerness to learn. and then we spend, it takes us about six months to, to train somebody up to, to be a knife maker where I'm very, very comfortable with the quality of work that they do and I don't kind of have to look over their shoulder and, and constantly be uh, managing um, the outcomes. Certainly there's a very large artistic element to what we do uh, and, and there's a benefit to being very comfortable with working with your hands. And then finally, it's it's a willingness to get burned and get hurt and get dirty, <laughs> uh, because you're working with things that are constantly trying to hurt you uh, in different ways. Um, and we take our OHNS very very seriously, but you're still standing in front of uh, a belt a belt grinder that that has the the capacity to really hurt you. Right. Okay. So, do you um, I guess then that 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 you'd have pretty strict OHNS uh, inspections and restrictions and things for setting up a a knife shop. Uh, I I think you know the backyard tinkerer can set them up however however they want. Um, we made a, a very conscious decision that we were going to take this part this side of the business very seriously, but far more important than finishing somebody's knife is that we all walk home at the end of the day uh, and with all our, with all our digits. Um, so we, we've invested a, a fair amount of money into, into having oh inspectors come into our space and go through it and, and walk us through those things uh, and, and make improvements based on those kind of things. Yeah, right. Interesting. I, I, I guess their first recommendation was um, no sword fighting then. Yeah, that's that's a little bit outside, you know, <laughs> what we're trying to do. Yeah, no, no testing, no testing your knives on yourself. Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So could you give me a bit of a walkthrough of um, what's involved with making one of those uh, beautiful brisket knives? Yeah, so with those, we, uh, we're doing them by the, the stock removal method. So we get a, a large sheet of steel with those, and we've got a, a design that we've designed in uh, AutoCAD, and then we get a water jet cut. That's the only process that doesn't happen in-house, uh, is that we get those, those water jet cut, and then they come back, uh, and then we heat treat those knives in-house. And so at that point, that will be our starting point of, of, of the knife. It's been heat treated. It's at the hardness that you want it to be at. The shape's all there. And then we start grinding in what's called the geometry. So before this, it's all 2.5 mil thick the whole way. And we want to start tapering it down from the spine until it's got a good cutting edge. Uh, and so we'll stand in front of a grinder and, uh, and grind off that, that material. Uh, and then once we've ground it off and it's got the geometry, we start working through different grits just because we want it to look beautiful as well. It's not just about performance. It has to, it has to look and feel beautiful as well. Yeah, right. Now, you mentioned um, water jets before. Is that, is that literally what it sounds like? Is that high pressure, like ultra-high-pressured water used to, to, to cut the steel? Yes, yeah, so water jet cutting is is exactly that. It's a high pressure water, and they also add a, an abrasive element to the to the liquid. So it's not just pure water; it's, it's water with essentially uh, sand or you know uh, something like that that allows it to kind of cut through the steel. Um, and we work with a really fantastic company who have been incredibly supportive. The best, the one of the hardest things about any small business is finding. Is finding companies that are willing to work with you because a lot of a lot of engineering firms, you know, you're too small fry for them. When you're like, hey, can we do this once uh, and never speak to you again? They don't, you know, they want to find the big customers. But we've found a, a really fantastic water jet cutting service that from day one, we're just really happy to work with us. That's great. I love hearing stories about that. About small businesses getting together and helping each other out. Yeah. Um. So. When you're coming up with a new design, are there any like rules or laws or anything like um, you know the the ADRs for cars, um, or can you just go wild and build some freaky looking zombie killing knife and take it to market? We can definitely design that kind of stuff. I don't know if we're going to bring it to market, <laughs> but you but you could. Yeah, it, there are some laws around this kind of stuff. There's actually some some quite strong laws in Australia around knife ownership. Uh, as a knife maker, I'm allowed to make these knives. I just wouldn't be able to sell certain of these knives. So uh, a perfect example is a dagger. Uh, a dagger is a long blade that has symmetry on both sides and a cutting edge on both sides. The only reason to own a dagger is because it's a weapon. Uh, and so the government has ruled that, that daggers are illegal, for example. Uh and that that same that goes for flick knives or certain knives that don't have safeties, uh, folding knives that don't have safeties, sit in that same area of, of uh, as a weapon. Myself and a lot of the other knife makers in Australia are making tools, uh, whether they be hunting knives, which are tools meant for hunting, or camping knives, which are tools meant for camping, or kitchen knives, which are tools meant for cooking. So, unlike a weapon, we're trying to produce. Uh, a, a tool, a beautiful tool, but still a tool. Um, 
there's a whole bunch that needs to be considered when you're actually designing a knife that's separate to is this legal or not. Uh, and it's things like, how is this knife going to be used? How is it going to fit in your hand? So a perfect example is a boning knife. Uh, we're working on a boning knife that we're looking to introduce in January. Uh, and it's taken us a long time because you look at the other boning knives on the market and they have different things that we don't like about them. And some small things are that a boning knife has to work in a couple of different ways in your hand. It has to work like a normal knife sitting um, kind of like a handshake where it's the blade is facing down. But also when you're, when you're cutting up uh, uh, a carcass, um, when you're breaking down some meat, it's really useful to be able to use a boning knife in a dagger, in what's called dagger grip. So it's where the blade, uh, you'd hold yourself, you had your hand like a fist, and then the blade points downwards. Um, so making that, that influences how you're going to make that handle because it needs to work in both of those. It needs to feel good, both in a normal grip as well as a dagger grip. Okay, but if you build it to be held like a dagger, it's not subject to the dagger laws. The dagger laws are more to do with, with the blade, the sh with the blade shape itself, rather than how you hold that knife. Uh, the dagger grip is just a uh, is just a way of explaining how you how you can hold a boning knife, rather than a description of the knife itself. On the topic of uh, Australia's wonderful uh, laws and regulations, um, once you've sold those tools, are there any regulations regarding shipping, like? Can you just uh, like wrap them up in bubble wrap and put them in a box and send them on their way? That's how we send all of our knives. We haven't run into any problems now. We have uh, our own packaging tubes that we send out our knives in. Uh, we bubble wrap them. We give them tip protectors. Um, we've learnt from repeated mistakes to to take these steps. We've had. You know, you're, you're making a very sharp object and you're sending it through the Australian postal system, which at times has got various levels of care added to their <laughs> packaging. Very diplomatic. So we've had we've had knives uh, arrive where the box has been ripped open. We've had knives arrive where the knife is now poking out the top of the of the Ooh. box itself. It's pierced through all the different things. Um, so we've learnt from those mistakes in the beginning, and uh, we take we take a lot of care in how we back these things up to ensure that they arrive safely at the end. Interesting that there would be um, laws about uh, about selling them, and then not so much about shipping them. I think I think you've got to, they've got to be shipped in a in a hard case, from my understanding. Ah. I, we've been doing it like that since the beginning but I know of some other knife makers who have dropped it off to the post office and then had the the, the post office rejected because it wasn't in, in a hard enough case oh okay there you go I, I recently uh, posted a um, a katana to myself from the United States and we um, fashioned a cardboard box out of other cardboard boxes and just uh, stuck it in and taped it up so it uh, yeah. it's it, it, it's still on its way but that's uh, that's fascinating so in your time at, uh, at Cutthroat Knives, uh, what's been your biggest challenge and how did you overcome it? Oh, that's, I think the, the biggest challenge has been essentially trying to make as many knives as we can. We've, we've, we've definitely connected with 
with people who want knives. Uh, and, and there's been a huge amount of demand for our knives. And, and uh, you know, at various points, we've had 12 or 18 months waiting lists. And we, we want to make that as short as possible. We don't want people to be waiting 18 months for a knife. We want people to be able to buy a knife and for it to arrive as, as quickly as possible. And so being able to manage essentially the delivery of, of our, our knives in a, in a timely fashion has been a big challenge for us. So, you know, only recently we've, we've launched week to week sales. And if people want something, uh, different or they want a matching set or they want something custom, they can get in contact and we have a wait list for those. So we're trying to manage, you know, somebody who just wants a knife and they've got a birthday coming up or, or they've just received some birthday money and they want to get themselves something nice. They're able to get it straight away. And then we've also got this other way of getting it with people who are willing to, to, to wait a bit longer. That sounds like a good system to me. So what's been your biggest success then? And what would you attribute that to? Uh, I think the the biggest success we've had has been the recognition that we've been getting from from industry. So we got uh, a delicious a delicious produce awards, and we got that within I think in in the first or second year of our of our business, uh, and so that was for outstanding design. Um, we were nominated by someone else. But it, it, that was a huge accolade. You know, we when I went there, I was standing right at the back of the crowd at the Delicious Awards because you don't want to get your hopes up about these kind of things. You know, you go to this thing and, and, and it's uh, an Australia-wide award for outstanding design in in the design elements of around food. So it's you're up against ceramicists, you're up against cast iron producers, you're up against... Uh, wood turners and, and chopping board manufacturers. And, and here I am a, a year and a half into my business and we get this award. That was, that was huge for that. And, uh, I think it's testament to the fact that what we're doing is connecting with people. Congratulations, mate. That's, that's absolutely fantastic. Was that the, um, was that the award ceremony that I saw a photo of you at? You were holding, it looked like a trophy that was an axe or something. A trophy that was an axe. Uh, I don't. I think you might be referring to my wedding. Oh, <laughs> uh, we had an axe at my wedding. Oh, um, <laughs> I, I, I just saw a photo of you. It, it looked like you were giving a speech in a suit and holding an axe above your head. Yeah, that was that was from my wedding. Uh, <laughs> we the, the story that comes out of that is at my at my partner's at my sister in law's wedding in England. Uh, when it came to cutting the cake, they had a guy come in with a ceremonial sword to cut the to cut the cake, and I was like, "Well, we're getting married in a year, and I'm not going to let a British person stand us up on how to do this kind of thing." So we decided to cut our cake with an axe, uh, and that's how that picture came about. <laughs> that's fantastic! I love it. So. Uh- to, to all the listeners who are, uh, who are interested in becoming a knife maker, um, how would you rate being a knife maker and uh, what advice would you give them? I love every day that I come into work. Uh, running my own thing is fantastic and working with the, the people that I've employed 
is is the happiest I've ever been. Uh, it's the hardest I've ever worked. Uh, it, it puts my the thesis that I wrote for my master's to shame in terms of how hard I'm working right now. But as I said, there's something really fantastic about coming in to work and, and making something every day. That's incredible. The advice I would have for, for knife makers is... Uh, is actually just get out there and, and, and start doing this stuff. Um, make a whole bunch of knives, give them to your friends, realize that what you made was probably pretty garbage, and then make some more knives and, and learn from your mistakes. And, and each one you should be going, okay, how can I do this better? How can I do this better? How can I do this better? Yeah, sounds like the, uh, the first... Uh the first laws of barbecue as well cook the cook barbecue for your friends and accept that uh that your first brisket's going to be awful yeah totally my first brisket was terrible i told people not to eat it uh yeah it's i think i think being humble enough as well to recognize what you that you can do better as well with all of these things you know Yes, especially with a brisket or with a knife. You know, a brisket, you're cooking it for so many hours that you become a little bit emotionally invested in the outcome. But being able to say, oh, I can do this better, and that's not an indictment of, of the last couple of hours that I've put into cooking this brisket. It's just a statement that I can do better than this is, is important to have through life. You're listening to the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast with barbecue pitmaster Ben Arnott. Our modern society is in a revolution at the moment. After years of exploring how we can use technology to better process our foods, we're now heading back the other way, realizing that traditional farming produces better tasting and healthier food. At the forefront of this movement is Pure Meats Robina. Not only are they a low and slow specialist butcher, they pride themselves on stocking ethically sourced organic products to help you give your family the delicious, proper balanced diet they need. Their meats come direct from Aussie farmers and are broken from carcass on site. Not only that, but all their products are made on site. From healthy, ready to cook stir fries for the time poor, to my favorite, the smoked crocodile cabana. And for you competitors out there, I can tell you that the quality of the competition meat is not only outstanding, but most importantly, it's consistently outstanding. So do yourself a favor and head to facebook.com slash puremeatsrobina to find out more. Alrighty, Aiden. it's time now for our listener question. So what I've done is I've uh, put a call out on social media. I've published my phone number. I'm not sure how wise that was, but we'll see. And uh, we've had some people call up and uh, leave some questions for you to answer. So we're going to have a bit of a bit of a listen to them now. Hi, this is Jared from Nara. My question is in regards to making knives. Are you always satisfied when you make them? Like, meaning, are you happy that they're they're complete. If not, what what makes you think that they're not always complete? Yeah, Jared, it's a good question. I think you've got to you've got to be at a point with with a knife where you're happy to send it out. Um, we have half a garbage bag or garbage bin full of all the knives that we've rejected uh, for various reasons. Where we're just not happy. To, to send them out to people. Um, 
other ones you have and you, you don't want to send them to the person because you like them so much. Uh, an imperfection in a knife can be as, as small as I'm not happy with the scratches, the scratch pattern that's on this knife. So when we've hand sanded it, you can still see, you know, uh, a scratch or two. That one's actually pretty easy to correct because you just go back and, and continue hand sanding. But we've had other ones where, you know, as you're doing the last little bit, as you're, you're, you're putting on the edge, you turn around and you knock into something and you've just ruined three days' worth of work. And so obviously that goes in the bin. Um, it's Ultimately, it, it, it's down to a very kind of subjective thing about whether we're happy with it or not. Um, and and that is constantly changing. We're constantly saying the knife that we're working on has to be the best knife that we've ever worked on. Mate, after three days working on a knife to, uh, to have to throw that in the bin, that's got to be pretty heartbreaking. Oh, it's brutal. There's, there's been ones that we've worked on for, for seven to ten days and had the same thing. And you you go a little bit crazy. I've, I've definitely gone home very angry on days that I've ruined a knife that I've walked on, worked on for 10 days. Mate, I get upset if I if I cook a brisket for 12 hours and it's a bit dry. I can't imagine working on something for 12 days and having to turn around and then throw it away. Yes, it's killer. Hi, Ben. Uh, it's Matt from Brisbane. Uh, hi, Aiden. I'd like to know how you got started in knife making. And also, I'd, another question that I had was... Uh, is steel selection and a very important, um, I suppose, part of of knife making? And how do you go about selecting your steel for making your knife? Thanks. Hi, Matt. Uh, I got into knife making by doing a couple of courses. So I learned with Adam Parker out in Ballarat, and then I flew up to Canberra and worked with Karim and the team at Fawa Valley Forge and did a course with them as well. After that, I just... I knew that this is what I wanted to do. So I bought a grinder and just stood in front of it for long enough and burnt, burnt things and hurt myself and cut myself until at one point I wasn't producing absolute garbage. Uh, I think that's a big part of knife making is just, is just time and getting the muscle memory to do this stuff and to do it uh, time and time again. Steel, uh, steel selection is a very large part of this. Not all steels are created equal. So steel at its most basic level is iron and carbon, but then you've got low-carbon steels and high-carbon steels. So a high-carbon steel is what we're really talking about when it comes to knife making, and that's anything from about 0.6% carbon and the rest iron to around 1% and beyond that, it starts getting into what's called cast iron. Uh, there are a couple of really great introductory steels if you're looking to get into knife making that I can suggest. So 1080, 15N20, and 1075 are really, really fantastic steels for the beginner knife maker. And they're great because uh, they're easy to work and they're really forgiving when it comes to heat treatment. So some of the more complex steels... You've got to heat them up to a specific temperature. You've got to hold them at that temperature for a certain amount of time, and they've got to be quenched in very certain oils or water. With 1075, with 1080, 
like 15 and 20, you heat it up until it's non-magnetic. So you can literally run a magnet over it and it's uh, and the magnet won't stick anymore. And and then you quench it in a quenching, so oil of some variety. You can use peanut oil, you can use canola oil, and you'll get a really decent result out of that. That's a brilliant way to start getting into knife making and starting to understand some of the processes. You know, I, I see a lot of knife makers who are like, oh, my first knife is made out of steel X. And you're like, it's, that, that steel is so complicated as one to, to use that you're never going to be getting a great result out of it. It's better to get your head around these, these simple steels uh, and then move on to those other ones. But steel selection is really important, uh, especially when you start factoring in what the end result and what the, the intended purpose of that, of that steel is. Hi, this is Mark from Melbourne. Hi, Cutthroat Norwich, and I have a simple question. Uh, with your knife-making classes, can you tell us some details about that and whether or not by the end of it you end up with your own knife and the costs and the process? Uh, very interested in that. Cheers. Hi, Mark. Uh, thanks for the question. We do an introduction to knife-making class over two days, um, and we do a couple of those per year. In that class, you will spend time making two knives that you then get to take home at the end of your time. Uh, we also hope to impart you with the knowledge and a lot of the connections to go off and, and do more knife making afterwards. So we're hoping that after you've finished our knife making class, that not only have you skipped a few stages in, in trying to do this yourself, but we can also point you in the right direction to, to taking those next steps as well. Uh, and the cost is, including GST, it's $880 over two days. Cool. And you get to keep two knives at the end of it. That's awesome. Yeah. Hey, Ben. It's Anthony from the Gold Coast. Firstly, I just wanted to know um, how Adrian got involved in the uh, bladesmith uh, industry or trade. Um, how long does it take, uh, on average, um, in the construction of one knife? And once that knife's completed... Um, how do you test it for strength, durability, etc.? Uh, what's his favourite wood to use for handles on his knives as um, his knives just look absolutely awesome? Thank you. Hi, Anthony. Thanks for the question. Um, so, as I mentioned before, I got into to bladesmithing through those classes and then just deciding to go off and do it myself. Uh, takes about three days. Uh, to make one of our knives. Um, but for some of the more complicated ones, it's four, six, ten days. Uh, it, it really depends. We are working on multiple knives at any one time, though. So the general rule is that we're progressing a knife, two knives on any one step uh, every day. So we've got multiple knives in heat treatment. We've got, we're grinding a couple of knives a day. We're hand sanding a couple of knives a day. We're gluing up a couple of knives a day. And then we're shaping the handles on a couple of knives. We can actually get through a fair amount of work that way. But if, when you're working like that, you've got to be really kind of strict with yourself about, about progressing those knives forward. Um, in terms of uh, the test that we do, uh, we obviously take it, take our knives home and test them at different points. We've got a, a rock, what's called a Rockwell hardness tester. So we test the the overall hardness of the blade itself. Um, and that's uh, and then we're also going for a certain level of ductility. So it, that, that comes down to an understanding of, 
of how to get the best results out of those steel. Um, with all of this kind of stuff, when we take on a new steel, we try and understand the most about that steel. We do a lot of reading up about it and about how to get the best results from it as well. Um, our favorite wood to use is Huon pine. So Huon pine is a Tasmanian wood from the Huon Valley in uh, in Tasmania. It's and it's an incredible wood. It has it's a bit too soft normally, but what we do is we stabilize it so we resin impregnate the wood to make it out harder. Uh, the wood's just got an incredible history to it. So when they first found it, they they discovered that it doesn't rot in water and it floats. So it became incredibly valuable as a boat building. Uh, a boat building wood uh, to the point that it nearly went extinct because they nearly cut it all down. Uh, and these days, the only way you're allowed to use it, you're not allowed to cut down any wood. You, you, They dredge lakes and they bring up some of this old wood that was cut down by convicts. And that's the wood that you can buy and, and, and use on handles. And I think that's just an incredible story. You know, what better statement about Australia than something that was that has literal convicts that have been involved in that production. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. Now, did you say um, the word ductility before? What does that mean? Uh, ductility is, is a, a, a term for kind of toughness. It's a bit of, it's a bit of an interesting term because it means a couple of, you know, toughness in in common language means a, a slightly different thing to what we're trying to, to refer to here. But you're trying to manage... So if we just wanted to make a knife hard, we'd go for as hard as possible. But then it becomes too brittle and it would break. It would shatter like glass um, if, if you dropped it because it would be so hard that it would it, it, it loses that ductility. So ductility refers to the metal's ability to... Uh, to withstand deformation. So can you bend the knife? Or can you hit it with a hammer without without something bad happening to it? So we're trying to have an, a very high hardness, but also a level of ductility, so that if something does happen, it's not going to break. It's not going to crack. It's going to have a small bend that you can fix. Hey, Ben. Michael from Melbourne. Hey, Aiden. Just wanted to know, how do you think the barbecue scene in Australia has contributed to your success? And also, what do you think the future of handmade knives is for Australia? Cheers. Uh, thanks for the question, Michael. The barbecue scene has been huge. Um, we've been toying around with it. We've been encouraged to make these brisket knives for a while. Uh, and, and the response has been really, really fantastic from, from the barbecuing scene. And, you know, to see an event like Meatstock grow in the way that it has and to be part of that is incredible. So we've got nothing but praise for the Australian barbecuing scene. And again, what you mentioned uh, earlier, Ben, about there's something really cool about the creativity that's happening in the Australian barbecuing scene. Um that, that blows me away. And I, I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes from here because I think what we're going to start to see is, is some more Australian uh, flavours being imparted onto the food. So it's not just a, a carbon copy of the American barbecuing scene, but it's an interpretation of that barbecuing with Australian flavours. Um, the future of handmade knives in Australia, I think people are learning to value 
the people around them who make things by hand. I, I, there's been a real shift. When I first launched people, I was too, I was a novelty. It was like, oh, there's this guy who makes handmade knives. Uh, and now people are starting to understand and, and value that stuff. Uh, and that's incredible. Uh, so I think, I think a lot's going to change in the handmade knife movement in Australia uh, in the next couple of years. It's, I've already seen a huge, a huge change in the time that I've been making, and I'm excited to see what, where it goes. Yeah, there's that old expression, uh, everything that's old is new again, and it seems like that's, uh, that, that's popping up in the knife world as well. Yeah, absolutely. Hi, this is Daniel from Brisbane. Hi, Adrian. I was just wondering, is there any added benefits of using resin for a handle over a wooden handle? Thanks, mate. Uh, hi, Daniel. Um, there's no benefits. There's just different different things. What it's it's about what you you prefer. So, a a wooden handle is going to have the warmth of wood. Uh, it's going to feel really fantastic. Uh, a resin is going to be so much more colourful. Um, and so it's it's going to come down to your personal choice with these kind of things. I should say that that our wooden handles have been stabilised, which is that they're put into a resin bath and then have that resin vacuumed into the wood itself before being cured in an oven. So straight wood on a on a knife is going to react with with moisture, and over time it's going to it's going to bend off the knife handle over time. Uh, and so by stabilising it, we work really hard to stop that stuff from happening. So they're like a like a hybrid handle? Uh, that's we do hybrid handles as well. That's a, a separate thing. So that we do a resin a resin wood handle. So it's part multicolored resin, part part live edge piece of wood. When I'm talking about uh, stabilizing wood, you don't actually change the colour of the wood itself. All you do is is you're you're sucking out the air that's still in that wood, and you're replacing that air with with resin, and then hardening it. So what it does is it makes soft woods like Tassie myrtle or Huon pine into hardwoods, and and stops them from moving as well. Hi, it's Jason from Stanthorpe. I have a question for Aiden on um, what is the best way to sharpen a knife and the, um, to keep it stored. Thanks very much. Bye. Hi, Jason. Um, the the way that we recommend people to maintain their, their knives at home is to use uh, water stones or wet stones. Um, these are, are the best. They, they're going to cost you, for a decent set of stones, they're going to cost you a bit more, but they'll last so long that you'll give them to your grandkids as long as you take care of them. There's not much that can go wrong with them. There's a slight learning curve with, with them, which is about learning how to maintain angles. But once you've got that, you can sharpen anything. You can take your scissors to them. You can take, you know, anything you need to, you can sharpen on those. And that's what's really fantastic about them. In terms of storage, we generally recommend that people put them on magnetic knife boards. Uh, the reason to not store them in a drawer or store them in a, um, in a knife block is the edge of a knife is incredibly thin. Uh, it's so thin that it can deform and move different ways quite easily. Uh, and so if it's 
sitting in a knife drawer, in a, in a drawer, and it's banging up against the spine of another knife, or if it's banging up against the handle of of a uh, of a ladle or something, you're going to be slowly bending that knife edge, and you're going to be taking away from its sharpness, and you want to be maintaining that as well as you can. Uh, and it's the same with knife blocks. If you are going to use a knife block, store the knife with the edge upwards rather than edge down into the ball into the block. Oh, mate, you've just solved a big argument between my wife and I because cause I've been wanting to get a uh, a magnetic knife rack for the wall and she's not been letting me have it. But now I've got you on my side. I think I'm going to win that one. Yeah, Aiden, Aiden knife maker and marriage counsellor. This is Grant from The Smoking Joint and I listen to Smoking Hot Confessions. All righty, mate, before I let you go, uh, what would be your three top pieces of advice for people with regard to purchasing and maintaining their knives? We kind of touched on that before, but I'm wondering if there might be some more. Sure. I think uh, I think with this kind of stuff, buy a knife that you're going to have a connection with or have a knife that you're going to have a connection with. We use kitchen knives more than we use any other knives, and they're the hardest working knives that we own. Um and if you're going to spend time in the kitchen, a really great knife is going to enhance your cooking experience. So I think the perfect knife that you could own is the one that your grandparents gave you. It, it might actually be garbage, but it's got that emotional connection. And so having something that has an emotional connection in the kitchen is going to enhance your cooking experience. So whether that's, you know, your grandfather's knife or whether it's one of our knives or whether it's a knife that you buy when you're, you're traveling through Germany and you, you go to a German uh, knife manu- manufacturing town, buy something that enhances your cooking experience. Um, in, in terms of maintaining it and taking care of it, take care of the tip. The tip is, is probably one of the more fragile parts of it. If you take care of the tip, the rest will take care of itself. And then finally, Understand that a falling knife has got no handle. So if you do drop a if, if you do drop a knife, just let it fall on the floor. You can always fix a knife, uh, the knife tip or, or a knife edge. Your hand is much more difficult to fix. Good point. I actually uh, I actually bumped one of my knives off the uh, counter when I was using it there one night, and it uh, I luckily I had that thought and I jumped out of the way. I just moved my foot at just the right time because the actual knife landed point down right where my foot had just been and uh, unfortunately snapped the tip off the knife um, so that knife's pretty much done but uh, yeah that uh, almost because of course I was in my house so I wasn't wearing shoes or anything I just bare feet but yeah that, that would have gone right through my foot I reckon yeah try to be safe around these kind of things <laughs> yeah okay mate the absolute last thing I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to hand the mic over to you completely now. You can give some shout-outs, give some thanks, and make sure you tell all the people listening uh, where they can track you down out on the interwebs. Right. Uh, well, thanks very much for having me on the, on the show. It's been fantastic. Any opportunity to talk about knives and barbecuing is the best opportunity ever. Uh, uh, a huge thank you to the rest of my team. So there's Faustina Delaney. She's just come on board with us at Apprentice Knife maker and Reza, the other full-time knife maker with us at Cutthroat Knives. Um, and you can find us online at cutthroatknives.com.au or through Facebook at uh, Cutthroat Knives 
or on Instagram at Cutthroat Australia. Uh, those are the different ways. If you just want to pop in and have a chat with us one day, we've got an open workshop policy. So if you just want to come in and, and, and have a chat, there won't be any knives available, but we're here to, we're here to answer questions as well. An open workshop policy. That's awesome. You're not, uh, not based up in Queensland by any chance? No, we're, we're down in Melbourne, in ah. Coburg. Oh, man, I would have been there tomorrow. <laughs> All right, well, look, thank you very much for your time. Um, I have learnt a hell of a lot, as I'm sure uh, everybody listening has. And uh, I wish you all the best of luck in the future, and I hope to see you again at uh, various meat stocks and other barbecue festivals. Great. Look forward to it, mate. Thank you. Well, family, how awesome was that? There's so much more to knife making than I ever expected. This is a public warning to my wife, though. I think my knives are in need of a serious upgrade. If you saw the brisket knives at Meatstock Melbourne, you know exactly what I'm talking about. To follow Aiden and check out the photos of his great work with Cutthroat Knives, follow him at Cutthroat Knives on Facebook and Cutthroat Australia on Instagram. i got to warn you though, if you start checking out his stuff, you'll be ordering a full set too. Coming up next Thursday, we have Mark from Smartfire in Episode 7. Mark is an inventor and barbecue enthusiast from Melbourne. His latest invention, the Smartfire, is taking the barbecue world by storm right now, making life easier for smokers and grillers all around the world. I don't want to say too much more and give it all away, but it's good. If you've ever had an idea for a gadget or product of some kind, this is the episode for you. Big thanks and much gratitude go out to this episode's sponsors, Harvey's Kitchen, Ministry of Smoke and Pure Meats Robina. Their support makes this project possible. I've put their links in the episode description, so please click on through to their sites to claim those awesome offers for you loyal Smoking Hot Confessions listeners. If you have a message that you'd like included in this podcast to get out to a barbecue mad audience, send me an email directly at ben at smokinghotconfessions.com and let's have a conversation. Shoutouts also have to go to those who called in and left questions for Aiden, Anthony, Daniel, Jared, Jason, Mark, Matt and Michael. Your thoughtful questions for Aiden were well asked and well answered. If you'd like more, I have published a free ebook that is just for you. Head on over to smokinghotconfessions.com slash ebooks to get your copy now. I've put a link in the description. Also, head on over to Facebook and join the Smoking Hot Confessions community, and let's continue the conversation. It's a group dedicated to teaching, learning, and sharing all about barbecue, and all the BS is left at the door. Everybody has a place in the Smoking Hot Confessions community. Finally, however you listen to this episode, please make sure you subscribe and leave a review. This way, the episode will be delivered to more people's devices by the Millennium Falcon in just 12 parsecs. Until next time, take care of each other and keep on queuing. Thanks for listening to the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast. Head on over to smokinghotconfessions.com for recipes, tips, and Ben's own confessions. <laughs>